Hello and welcome to Golden Grenades, a podcast mainly about birds but also about the end of the world. But before we get down to business, I must apologise to this week's special guest. This episode was actually recorded a couple of months ago, but a dose of Covid and a fair bit of life getting in the way stopped me getting it all edited in time. But better late than never. This week's special guest is Jamie Dunning. Jamie is an ornithologist currently working towards his PhD on the social lives of house sparrows at Imperial College in London. Away from his PhD, he works on his amateur project on Twite in England and has also worked on the bill plates of Atlantic puffins, the migration of continental twite and most recently, in his spare time, on how white plumages work in environments with little or no natural light. Jamie, hello and welcome to Golden Grenades. Hello, thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm good. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm really excited about this. Uh, the pleasure's all mine, mate. So we've known each other for a while now and bonded over a few beers at Bird Fair, RIP. But for listeners who may not know, you're a proper ornithologist, aren't you? You're not just like the rest of us. You just go around with the binoculars looking at a few birds. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into that? It's one of those things that I was that kid who was really interested in birds and I spent a lot of time looking at birds and then I've just been really lucky that people still want me to look at birds, you know, <laughs> and I've managed to fill my time with it. So I, so I do that commercially. I do that uh, as, as an ecologist. I specialise in birds and I also do it as, as my day job at Imperial College and, and field work for other people, too. What was the trigger, if you like, where you went from just being a kid who liked birds, who then wanted to dedicate their life you know, and career to birds? I'm not sure exactly where that step was for me. I was never really much of a sort of twitcher. The chase was never really what did it for me. But I, I, I've always loved birds and bird behaviour in particular and kind of form and function and stuff. And, you know, the, I was just surrounded by the right people. And particularly uh, Steve Christmas was, was somebody who, you know, I'd, I'd email Steve and say, I've, I've got this kind of interesting thing or do you want to talk about this or this is really cool. And Steve was the first person who, who ever got back to me and said, we should write it. We should write it up as a, you know, we could publish it as a paper and people will get back to us and we can have this wider conversation. And it just became kind of the framework, you know, that was like the lens then that you, that you look at things from this, this kind of wider perspective. And you've published lots of different articles, haven't you? I was looking at your, your publication history online and we'll talk about a couple of different species later on in your top five birds that, that you've studied intensively. But you've even done stuff with rollers. Yeah, that was part of uh, my friend's PhD. I did two summers, one in Latvia and one in the south of France, where we, we kind of, I mean, you know, sorry, Tom, but we kind of ate a lot of pizza and drank beers and chased rollers around and we GPS tagged them and we just, we did everything. It was awesome. That was a real kind of defining point in my career as a, as a field ornithologist, really, that, you know, every, everything we could do, they were the, they were the big exciting questions on, on such cool birds. Pizzas, beer and rollers. I mean, you know, there's not much more to, that you need from life to you than that. There was also a bit of science, but, but, <laughs> but that was kind of Tom's problem. You know, that was Tom's PhD. I was there as his field assistant. I had a great time. That was... <laughs> That's excellent. So at this point, I'm just going to go straight in and ask you my zero punches pulled question. Zero punches pulled. pulled. If you could do your science 
and discover anything new about any bird species, what would it be? So this is a slightly boring answer, really, because it's research that I've half done. And that is we described that puffins bills fluoresce under UV lights. And I talk about it all the time. And I've been really lucky. It's been a real privilege to be involved in it. Everybody wants to talk about it. And I can't. The scientist in me dies every time because I, I don't know why. Right. Like I've got no idea why they why we described it. We've got all these theories. Other people have all these theories. I can't tell you why. And it, it keeps me awake at night. <laughs> That's terrible, isn't it? You've discovered this ridiculous thing about such an iconic bird and you don't know why it happens. So how did you discover that puffins beaks fluoresce? Yeah, so, so, I've, so I've answered that question before and, and then I've, I've said that it was an accident. And that is partly true. It was quite late. I was in the lab on my own. I was supposed to be working on the phylogenetics of Twite. And I had this, you know, I'm the kind of person who people send dead birds to. And I had loads of different dead birds in the lab. And I thought, I wonder if any of them look different under these different kind of wavelengths of light. And one of the lights I had was a, was a sort of high intensity UV light for illuminating like gels from PCR gels. We all know that from the coronavirus pandemic yeah. now right you know you you illuminate those with uv lights and so i i put various things under but the puffin was one that i kind of expected because it has this crazy bill plate you know and what are the odds that it only looks like that in the wavelengths that we can see that felt pretty unlikely so i held it under the uv lights and it glowed and i took a picture and i sent it to my friend and then i came home and i started googling why do puffins' bells glow under UV lights? <laughs> no one had done it before. Like it was, you know, it was just one of those things. It was one of those, I was in the right place at the right time, I think. It's amazing though that obviously you had a, an inkling that something would be unusual when you shone the light on it and then just thought somebody's discovered this before now and they hadn't. But they usually and, have, right? That's yeah. that's how science works. You stand on the shoulders of giants. You you make some observation, however small, and you present it in the context of what comes before you. And in this case, there wasn't a great deal of context. And you still can't explain it. But you were on telly, you were in, you know, all over the press. I very much have my 15 minutes. I'm still classed as an early career researcher. And I, you know, on one hand, that was a great experience. We were on uh, the BBC and National Geographic and the New York Times and you name it, we did it. There's been two children's books that I know of to date, which have got puffins' bills glowing in them. Really? Uh, a permanent exhibition in some museum in Canada. Like, the world just loved it because it was this iconic species, right? But, you know, I, I did find it quite difficult at the time, particularly as lots of the kind of attention was, well, why do they do it? And I, as I say, I can't answer that question. And in not answering that question, I think I left lots of these kind of media outlets open to speculation which again haunts me in the middle of the night now it was an amazing time maybe one day further down the line you'll come back you'll find the answer you'll be able to sort of put that one to bed or, or better still somebody else <laughs> <laughs> no you wouldn't want somebody else finishing your work no no, no. Oh, i do just want someone to tell me what's your best working hypothesis it changes 
and I'm basing it on very, very little data or evidence, I should say. There's there's no data. So the bill plate of an Atlantic puffin, that bill plate develops just for the breeding season. They don't look like that year round. In the winter, they have this drab little brown bill. And so I kind of thought at the time that maybe it would be a bit like scorpions, that they have this kind of hardening process where they oxidize and the fluorescence is just a sort of byproduct of that oxidization. Yeah. But now I sort of think that it could be related to kind of green fluorescent proteins, which bioaccumulate in the stuff they eat in winter at the time at which those bill plates are kind of developing. And maybe there is now just slightly there's a very small amount of evidence that might support that from studies on auklets in Canada, but we don't know. I kind of hope that it's not just accidental. I kind of want it to, to have a purpose. I don't know if I agree. I quite like that there might just be these kind of these artifacts that, that we find kind of really nice. But actually, puffins, they don't think about it at all. It's just, yeah. you know, it's something that we appreciate and, and, and theirs is different. Well, if that would satisfy you when you finally get to the bottom of it, then that's cool. It'll be interesting either way. An artifact is as interesting as, you know, something useful to puffins, I think. That's a true scientist speaking there, isn't it? Well, it's far more useful than mine. Mine, if I could, you know, discover anything about any species, it would be to discover that wood pigeons, the reason they wolf down acorns is to make them heavier so that they can go faster down slides when you're not looking. Only when you're not looking. <laughs> Yeah, I, I suspect I won't ever discover that. You're also studying bird plumages and feathers at the moment, aren't you? What can you tell us about that? So I have this kind of side project, which is a term we use when it's not what we're paid to do during the day. And it started out as a sort of lockdown project in the kitchen where I had lots of different white feathers. And I was looking at the structure of those white feathers just to see whether they differed from non-white feathers, right? Because there are, there are shades of white, as bizarre as that sounds. There are whiter feathers and there are kind of duller feathers. And we found this, this structure, which we think is really, really optimizing whiteness, the brightness, the reflectance of this particular plumage type. And so that's what's keeping me occupied, you know, outside of my nine to five at the minute. And uh, yeah, we're hoping to have that out by by the spring, summer. Mm, well, that's that sounds really interesting. And I know that you can't say too much at the moment because it's it's not published. But I gather you've found something quite fascinating. So we'll just have to wait and see what that is when you when you publish it. Right. Well, Jamie, let's crack on and get down to the nitty gritty. As you know, this podcast is based around the not too ridiculous, sadly, premise that we are facing an environmental collapse of unprecedented proportions. And you get to choose your five favourite bird species, the five species of birds that mean the most to you to bundle onto the metaphorical arc to save from this impending environmental Armageddon. So if you could tell us about Bird number one. one, one. So bird number one is the house sparrow. And, and did you say nobody's chosen house sparrow before? They haven't. It's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. That really surprises me. So, so the house sparrow are, are the subject of my PhD, which is part of the reason that I chose them. But also they're, that, they're the common bird. They're the sound of most people's kind of childhoods, aren't they? Anybody that grew up with a sort of privet hedge. That was the sound of those. So my main research interest at the minute is on reproductive choice and social behaviour in house sparrows. House sparrows happen to just be the system we've chosen because on Lundy Island, where we work on them, we have this great system where they're all ringed. We've known them all for 20 years. We have full 
kind of genetic information for all of those birds. And so we can build these full family trees of who's related to who, which means that we can say who's being very faithful and who's not. And also things like how fit individuals are. We know who the fitter ones are and the less fit ones. And on top of that, we also have quite a lot of social data. So who they hang around with. And my research is on how sociality influences reproductive choice. And in doing so, that's really made me realise that actually sparrows are great. And, and then I've had this opportunity to look at sparrows with this kind of magnifying glass where all of a sudden there's no secrets, right? <laughs> and they have these incredible social lives, these incredibly kind of interwoven social lives with each other. They form neighbourhoods, they have friends, they have better friends and worse friends. Some of them opt to have lots of opposite sex friends, where some of them are kind of opt to have these kind of mixed social groups. It's awesome. It's a real privilege. I've got house sparrows in the garden. You know, I can recognise one individual because it's got a bit of an aberrant rump colour. So I know that this female I've been seeing her for two or three years and she's different. That's how she stands out. But to think that you can identify individuals and plot family trees and know which bird is related to which, it's insane. So what you're saying is, the way they hang out and the, the ones that they interact with, you're able to study that and then prove how that influences their, their genetic line. Yeah, and, and, and the sort of choices that they make and the kind of fitness outcomes for them and for their offspring. But the challenge actually is kind of not in the genetics because this project has been running for over 20 years. We've got the genetics kind of down now. The challenge is in the social side, right? Because if you picture and bear with me on this tangent, but if you picture a sort of pub and if you were to walk in and you were tasked with assigning everybody who's friends with who in this pub without knowing them, that's essentially what we have. We have sparrows coming to a bird feeder. So we all know that you stand next to people at a bar who you're not actually friends with. You're just stood there because you're all trying to order a drink. So we have to untangle this, the way that they visit feeders, the way that they visit nest sites we have to kind of define what a friendship is and that's been a really interesting challenge up to this point do you i mean i'm guessing you're a scientist so you will probably just call them by their ring numbers but no we don't call not all of them some of them have got names for sure yeah that's that's where i was going with that yeah 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 definitely definitely you know not like not academically but we those of us who are out there on the ground we have names for quite a lot of them yeah Uh, some of them I probably wouldn't share, <laughs> you know, and there's, there's two that, you know, pretty much roost in the Morisco Tavern every single night. I don't know the bar staff in there. They've got names for several of them. Really? There's one that follows the housekeeping team around because it knows that they throw food for it. They've all got these kind of really interesting personalities. Yeah. Just out of interest, what do you call sparrows? You know, where you're from, do you call them spuggies or spadges or sparkies or, you know, yeah, I was, I was born in Manchester and we moved to the Midlands and now I'm in the South. So maybe that just kind of rounds them off to just sparrows. <laughs> are they spuggies exclusively where you are? Does everyone call them that? Everybody calls them spuggies or spugs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think they do. Anyway, in, in my head they do. But yeah, I, I, was, I was reading Sparky was a new one on me. I, I don't think I've ever come across any documented evidence of any of them being electricians. No, no me neither. And I look pretty closely at them. <laughs> I think you would have picked up that behaviour. Yeah, we've got cleaners and bartenders, but no. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're great birds, though. They're, they're cheeky and jaunty, and I do love them. 
And I think there's a reason why Captain Jack Sparrow in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies is called Captain Jack Sparrow. It's because, you know, of his demeanor and stuff. He's not Captain Jack Chaffinch. No, no. You know, that's kind of the guys in the Marines or whatever the other side is with the big red coats, right? They're the Chaffinches. Sparrows are kind of scruffy and clumsy and, you know. And they've got this, they kind of pair for life, but then they've got this reputation of, of being players and quite lecherous and you know throughout history and folklore and in and literature over centuries the sparrow has meant somebody who's a bit of a jack the lad kind of thing because they're always at it on the hedges and stuff like that but then they have these secret dalliances and, and affairs with the one they've just met at the pub yeah and it's it's more than you think you know that it's you know we think about one in five chicks is raised by a dad that's not the the social partner that's driven by males and females they're all at it when i first started my phd and we had this idea of looking at kind of how sociality affects the sort of sex lives of sparrows basically the best thing i could think of to describe it was um you know love island the tv show love island they basically put a bunch of people on an island and you just work out who's with who you know that's it's kind of what we're doing. <laughs> we're looking at, we're just looking at sort of, you know, how they interact with each other and how that then affects their kind of relationships. And it's you awesome. should make a TV show, Sparrow Love Island, though. That people would watch that. I'd definitely watch it. And there'd be more drama for sure. More <laughs> drama. If you think about it, the way you know your sparrows and how long lived they are, I guess it must be quite hard not to anthropomorphize their their societies. And then you think back to even as recently as World War Two, when they were seen as pests, you know, and they were just killed in their millions. You know, you could get like trophies for being the best sparrow killer and things, you know. When you know what you know about, you know, how yeah. complex their lives are to think that people would just go and just sort of like catch them in a pot out of their nest. That's part of their attraction, right? To, to research that their successes and failures have been so closely linked to our own that one theory, at least, is that their population increased as we changed the way we farmed the land. And actually, the declines we're seeing now are sort of you know we had this kind of artificial peak over the last century or two and there's that story isn't there i don't know how true it is that supposedly bto ringers were charged for every sparrow they ringed at one point in history because they were seen as a sort of waste of rings oh really and and then they started declining and we we didn't have the data and they have been well studied over the years i guess and like you're saying you know the birds that you're studying in lundy island have been studied for over 20 years and as you've touched upon they're they're massively in decline a 99 percent urban decline i mean i'm lucky I've, I've still got a decent amount in my garden but i'm slightly out of the city center here how do they rub alongside your tree sparrows you have both do you? yeah i do so I, I think numbers wise probably five sixths you know house sparrows and tree sparrows and they just seem to get on they but I'm not spending hours, you know, watching them and seeing how they interact. Yeah. You know, you've, you've inspired me to want to do that a bit more now. I think that if the answer to your no punches pulled question wasn't why do puffins bills glow, I'd love to know why house sparrows, why the males and females look different. They have this dimorphism, right? But the tree sparrows don't need it for some reason. <laughs> you know, they, that, that is, that's what yeah. interested me. That is a good question. Yeah, that is weird. I've never even thought of that before. That's why you're a scientist and I'm not. <laughs> right. Well, listen, I think we could talk about house sparrows for ages because they're, they're brilliant. And we haven't even talked about the fact that they just say cheap like a bird and they take dust baths, which are two things that I wholly admire about them. But anyway, yeah. we'll move on. Tell us about your second choice. Bird number two. two, two, two. 
So my second choice is the only bird on my list not native to the UK, and that's the common grackle. And I picked grackle probably in the slot where I could have easily picked starling, or hoopoe is the one that was very almost in this slot. And they're just those birds, which are like kind of Quentin Blake drawings of birds, right? With the big hair and the stupid names and the like obnoxious plumage. They, they were probably the birds that, that kind of really hooked me when I was a kid. You can't not be excited about who, you know, who wouldn't twitch a hoopoe around the corner from their house. They're just, they're awesome. And I also actually recently was reading Jim Henson's autobiography of Muppets and Sesame Street fame. And read this great bit. It was, it was it made my year really. But lots of the early Muppets were just inspired by kind of mad birds that he was seeing on the east coast of the USA. And that you know, Grackle was his favourite, and he based the freckles on them. And the freckles ultimately were kind of diluted into Gonzo the Great. The Muppets are so kind of stupid and noisy, and and I think it's awesome that that came from birds. You know. Yeah, that's brilliant. Out. In my head, Gonzo, when I was a kid, he, he, he looked bird-like, but he didn't strike me as a bird. He wasn't like bald eagle or big bird, you know, but there was he kind of had a beak. So that makes sense that he was distilled from... Yeah, and the joke was always that he was a thing, right? They'd go, what are you? And he'd go, I don't know, I'm a thing. And I think that kind of applies to Hoopoes and Grackles. Where do, you even, where do you put them in? And that list goes on and on and on, you know. Yeah, they were the birds that did it for me. I, I really remember being about... I don't know, six or seven and seeing a hoopoe while we were on holiday. And my dad, who is interested in birds without being a serious birder, knew what it was. And I drew it and you do the things you do as a kid and fixated on it for, for ages. And, and that was the kind of first bird I think I remember paying attention to, you know, and, and, I, and I'm sure, although I wasn't kind of aware of it at the time, that it was just the sort of ridiculous just the sort of stupidity of it you know how could you not look at that how could you not watch that thing just kind of picking bark up in a kid's play area yeah you know one of the themes that we've had throughout some of the recordings on this podcast that a few of us when we were kids did gravitate to the page of the crazy looking birds yeah you know the hoopos the rollers the wall creepers you know we all sort of looked at those and that was yeah. unless you read the text you thought you were going to stumble upon them just around the corner from your house sort of thing, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. at any yeah. time. But Common Grackle, obviously, isn't a UK-based bird. So what's your experience of them? So a few years ago, I was in America going to a friend's wedding. It was my first time in America and was ambling around Central Park with my binoculars and just came across a kind of ridiculous gang of them. And they were by far and away the best bird I saw on that trip. And I saw I saw all the all the classic American species, you know, Cardinals, bald eagle, you name it, brown-headed nuthatch, got all the good stuff. A pileated woodpecker in, in nice. the kind of smoky mountains. But it was the grackles that kind of stuck with me. And I think it's that kind of hoopoe factor. You know, they're not rare. The Americans call them blackbirds, don't they? To them, yeah. they're just... And I think, I think the word grackle comes from the Latin for jackdaw, because, you know, the kind of early Europeans who landed on America saw them and went, that's kind of like a jackdaw, you know, and they have their robins and yeah. just name them the stuff they knew from Europe. But they're cooler than jackdaws. No, they're great. They, they do look cool, actually. I, I know that Americans or some Americans see them as a bit of a pest because they're noisy and they go around, like you say, in gangs and they leave loads of droppings and they're bullies at bird feeders. And 
they eat a lot of grain and they, 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 they generally not a particularly loved bird but they're stunning you know they've they've got this iridescent plumage and the blue head and breast and this long turquoise tail and crazy yellow ring around their eyes that they're, they're beautiful looking birds i think you i think you're right that I, I think lots of americans see them like sparrows and starlings i th- I think i remember reading a few years ago that lots of americans think they're um an invasive but they're not they're just annoying definitely one of those that kind of hooked me into birding and I, and I was that kid who you know I didn't have parents who were super mega birders I was lucky just to have had my dad who was interested enough and support from the rest of them excellent excellent choice and any bird that inspired Jim Henson to create the Muppets is deserving of anybody's top five I agree right then let's move on and tell me Jamie about bird number three 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 <laughs> So my third choice was going to be my first choice, but I decided to put it in the middle. And that's the twight, a finch, which is native to this country, but now quite rare, sadly, in England. And the species which I think I've spent most of my adult life watching. And you're one of a very small select band of people that have spent time looking at this fairly unspectacular bird. And you've spent a lot of time like i say a few a few people have spent time on this bird because they're fairly unobtrusive innocuous not very great looking little finches of the moorlands that's right and i I think maybe in complete contrast to my second bird the kind of grackles and the hoopos of the world actually the stuff that interests me now are these kind of uh the stuff that other people would just call little brown jobs and i think there was a sort of romance in Twite that when I was a teenager, they were the rarity that proper birders hadn't really seen, but you could still see by getting the bus from Manchester, right? You could still get on a train at Victoria and see a Twite and be home in a day. They weren't ever common, but they did hold on in England. And it felt like this kind of enigmatic, almost like a kind of mythical creature that lived on the moors. One of my first jobs was for the RSPB, Dovestone, on the edge of Manchester in the Pennines and fight with this thing that we always had on our management plans, but we never saw on the reserve. They, they'd just gone. And so for a while, I, I knew where there were a small number of birds and I knew that there was this project in the past that colouring them and we could, we could look at them then as individuals. We could really nail down the kind of threats to twite. We could really sort of pinpoint the bottleneck to the conservation of twite by colouring them and nobody was doing it at the time. So I found some ringers. I didn't have a ringing licence at the time and I convinced them that this was this big project we had to do. And I remember the first two we ever caught, it had been a year in planning. We'd been out a few times and seen and caught nothing. And then we caught these two birds and we all kind of cheered and clapped and... (laughs) you know and hugged and ring the birds and let them go and it felt like this big kind of moment and since they hooked me and they've hooked others they're this incredible species in the behavior and in, in their kind of adaptations for where they live and we've ringed i think on the last count uh, over 1200 now in england wow over 10 years and i've published papers on them and, and we have a student at the minute who's just submitted a paper on the survival of twite and we think we've kind of honed in on at least where the bottleneck is for survival for the English birds. They're basically a, a moorland mountain bird, aren't they? But they're originally derived from Tibet. Their, their population was split by glaciation and, and various things. So that's why we've ended up with a, a few here when really most of them aren't here. 
Yeah, that's right. So there, there are a few species like that, actually. Firecrest is another one and, and Black Red Star, but maybe none of them as, as kind of obvious as the twight that we have this, we call it a disjunct population. You have this big group in the kind of Himalaya and Central Asia, and then this, this other smaller group, which is very much confined to the north of England, Scotland, and then parts of Scandinavia. And nothing in the middle. There's a big twightless hole in the middle. One of the things I was interested in in the past was whether there was a genetic difference, right? So, so another a similar species, for example, is um, azure wing magpie. We have a population in Spain and we have a population in China and nothing in the middle. And they are genetically distinct. And it would make sense for that to also be true for twite. But that doesn't seem to be the case on the limited data we have. It seems to be that actually that split is relatively new and that they're, they're still quite closely related. But, but again, I'm kind of speculating. Mm, so much to learn. But there, again, another species massively in decline. And you feel like you've got a hypothesis for why that's happened? Yes and no. I think, like all conservation stories, I think it would be wrong to say you ever have the answers, right? Because actually for Twite, we've always treated them as this fairly clear-cut conservation issue that they run out of food either in the breeding season or in the non-breeding season. They're completely vegan. They only eat seeds all year round, which is quite unusual for passerines. But, you know, anecdotally, there's, there's quite a lot of kind of meadows planted specifically for twite by the RSPB since 2006, and they're used. And the decline has continued. And I, and I think there's a lesson here that this is clearly a more complex story than it's been treated in the past. And, you know, climate change is certainly having an effect on where twite further away in Europe are, are choosing to winter. And anecdotally, we're seeing more linnet in the uplands than we've ever seen before. And that brings with it kind of competition. You know, that that classic textbook kind of niche petition that linnet are just twite that live on the lowlands and twite are just linnet that live in the uplands. That's kind of dissolving a bit. And, and so I think it is more complicated. How do you catch twite? It's not just a case of putting up mist nets, is it? No, it's not. They don't fall for mist nets. I think I've ever, I've caught single figures in mist nets. So we use what's called a whoosh net, which is the noise it makes when you fire it. We essentially have a baited feeding station. And when the twite come down, they land on the seed or, or whatever resource we've put down there. And as soon as it's safe and the birds are all stood in a tight ball in the middle, we kind of launch the net over the top of the flock. It's completely safe. We're all licensed and trained to do it. You get them out quicker than you would in a mist net and we can get them ringed and, and thrown back quicker too. It must be quite fun to use though, like firing a net. Yeah. It is quite fun to use, yeah, it's good. <laughs> I can't pretend it's not, it is good fun. I know we've talked about this when we've, we've been tiddly at, at Bird Fair, but we need to do a t-shirt of a twite based yeah. on twite club. Yeah, 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 that'd be great. <laughs> Red 67 was a great drum banging exercise for twite. Part of the tragedy is that most people in the street don't know what a twite is. You know, how can you conserve something you don't know and understand? You've written here in, in Red 67, they're often given the unenviable title of the ultimate bird as bird, the ornithological equivalent of a face only a mother could love, which yeah. I think is brilliant because you're right, they're, they're just the ultimate little brown job. And, you know, apart from some of the breeding males having that little pinky patch on their bums, but like you say there, you could almost 
not know they're there. I only ever see them very occasionally, at, you know, in the winter when they've come down on the coasts. But, you know, you've, you've got to be lucky. Yeah, and that's the case. You know, this winter we've had very, very few records from the southeast coast, which is where the English birds winter. The ones up near you are Scottish, so you, you have slightly more than we have down here. But yeah, they are a difficult bird to see now, which is sad. They're supposed to be quite tame, though. Have you found that? I've read in books that they're quite a confiding bird. They're certainly hardy. I don't know about tame. Derek Radcliffe wrote the monograph on Peregrine, didn't he? I'm sure, if I remember right, that Derek Radcliffe wrote this, this paragraph about Twite often choosing to nest near peregrines because they decided that peregrines weren't going to eat them, but they were going to keep everything that did eat them away from the nests, which, <laughs> which maybe that's maybe that makes you quite tame. <laughs> um, that's what you mean, but I, I've, I've never seen any evidence of that, to be honest. I like that. Obviously, I love a peregrine. So, yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. Peregrine Twite connection, which I didn't know about. Right, we'd better crack on. So, let's talk about your fourth bird. Bird number four. So my fourth bird is the cold tit. And I've picked the cold tit. There's a sort of theme here, particularly between House Sparrow and Twite. You know, actually, we're all birders, scientists. We all like big, broad pictures, right? We like a rule that applies to everything. We like a broad approach. And I think cold tit are the, they're the antidote to that, right? But they were certainly one of the birds for me where I stopped being particularly interested in how you identify them. And actually, you realise that one of their identifying features is that they they prefer conifers. You know, it was the first time I really thought about behaviour and the niche, you know, that the, the birds weren't just kind of randomly scattered across the UK and you were just lucky if you found a rare one. They're not like Pokemon. You know, there's this they have these kind of rules that apply. And Coltit was the first one for me. And I mentioned a bit about the kind of niche petitioning stuff with Twite and Linnet. And that that feels like advanced birding, right? Coltit is that that's the one that you can look out of your kitchen window and say, since I put those conifers in, I'm getting more coltits on my bird feeder. And I think that's a really lovely thing. I don't have any conifers, but I get tits, but I'm guessing that's because there are conifers around. Yeah, I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. It's just kind of, you know, it's it's preference. And I've, you know, what interests me, I, I think I said earlier, I'm not a big lister. I never have been. You know, identifying birds is an occupational hazard, really. What I'm interested in is preference and behavior and ecology. And and I think the cultit is a is a great common example of kind of where it's where a common bird starts to deviate from the stuff you're used to and they're the perfect example or part of the perfect example of pecking order aren't they yeah yeah yeah. they're not high up the great tits and even the blue tits will have a go on you know i've noticed and i've noticed and i do other tits do this but cold tits seem to hide particularly sunflower seeds i've seen them putting them like cashing them yeah cashing them in like the walls and and under the slates of the roof and stuff like that and, and i don't see any of the other tits doing that but i'm guessing that's probably because they have to be in and out dead quick because they grab something and save it for later i think certainly the other two are generalists right i mean we say the other two because we know what we're talking about we've not actually said them that's blue tit and great tit isn't it (laughs) the other two are generalists they will live anywhere they'll find food anywhere you'd have to work hard to ruin a kind of blue tits day you know i think cult it as you say they're the they're the underdog of, of this kind of group yeah, lovely little birds as well. And at this time of year, like so busy, 
you know, because yeah. I guess I guess it's small bird, they've got to keep their temperature up and they've got to keep fed. So 90% of the time they're just feeding, feeding, feeding. Right. Anything else you want to say about cult it? No, don't think so. <laughs> that was a wild card. <laughs> that could have been anything, to be honest. I was just reading as well about the two different endemic races, which I didn't particularly know about. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, so on, on Lundy last year, actually, there are no tits on Lundy. You know, a, 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 any tit on Lundy is a, that's a red letter day. That's super twitchable. And uh, we caught a cold tit in a mist net as part of routine monitoring of the sparrows. And it was the, it was Hibernicus. It was the Irish subspecies, which is super interesting to see close up, you know, with the sort of yellow face and all that stuff. Yeah, and Britannicus yeah. is the rest, isn't it? That's the endemic one. Right. Jamie, let's move on. Tell us about your fifth and final bird. Bird number five. five. So my fifth and final bird is the wimbrel. I, I've, I've listened to this podcast. You know, I've listened to the others. Lots of people pick swift. Lots of people pick redwing. I'm picking wimbrel for the same reason, right? It's that kind of superpower that we have as birders to take the front off the watch and look at the mechanism move isn't it you know to hear them come and go and 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 what that represents to hear wimbrel flying over and wimbrel for me are they're sea watching in spring in cornwall and and fields filled with them in Lundy, and they're always a joy and a privilege to watch yeah i think for most of us like you say a, a passage bird in spring and autumn because they've come from africa don't they and then there's a tiny little breeding population that moves their way up through the coast. And if you're lucky enough, you'll hear them passing through. They, they might stop for a bit and you'll get to see them. But yeah, they, they head up, don't they, to, to Shetland mainly, a few in Orkney. and Yeah, that's right. And further north, I think. Last summer, I had a real awesome afternoon dreaming where this huge storm was rolling in on Lundy where I was working. And the Wimbrel just just piled into the village you know all the fields were full of these wimbrel you usually get one or two fly over but this storm was meaning that they were stopping on the island and i, I have this photo of wimbrel stood on the roof of the pub and the church and the fields oh, were, wow. it, yeah it was magic i bet you like in the past that would have seen as some crazy bad omen as well <laughs> yeah i don't know anything about the folklore of them but they they definitely feel like one that means a death is imminent, you know. Patrick Barkham wrote about them in Red 67, and I didn't know this before, but there's this story that sometime in the 1800s, somebody heard seven wimbrel going overhead at night, you know, with that sort of distinctive seven-note call that they make. And then the next day, loads of people were killed in a mine. The seven whistlers have come to mean, if you hear seven wimbrel, then death is imminent. And apparently... After that, a few years later, as Patrick wrote in the book, somewhere else in the country, I think that happened up in Northumberland that, you know, there was a big mine disaster. And then a few years later in the Midlands somewhere, Coventry, I think he wrote, you know, a load of miners refused to go down the mine because one of them had heard seven wimbrel the night before. So yeah. whether it's true or not, but, you know, that's the, the folklore of it. So a load of them on perched on the pub in Lundy. Yeah, yeah, it was probably more than seven, but not all on the pub. So, you know, I do a bit of knock mig, this recording birds flying over your house at night. So I know that actually Wimbrel can be really difficult to split from little group at night as a knock mig call. I wonder if, if actually Wimbrel have been wrongly accused of causing this mining disaster, that maybe it was little grebes after all. Well, um, you never know. It could have been. Maybe, I'm just trying to defend them because I've picked them on my list. <laughs> yeah, let's blame the dab chicks. Yeah. 
Yeah. The other thing I like about Wimbledon, and, and this is really stupid, but Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer, they did a, a show, House of Fools, a few years ago, and Wimbledon was used as a verb a few times, and it, it generally just meant to, like, funny around, you know, are yeah. you Wimbledon? You know, yeah. and it's like, excuse me, I hardly ever Wimbledon. Oh, you do Wimbledon. Yeah, which I quite like. I've used it myself a few times, which yeah, does... it makes sense. But it, it does the Wimbrel a huge disservice, I think, you know, because they don't fanny around. You know, they come from Africa, they go do their business up north and then they head back to Africa. You know, there's no faffing about with them. So they, they do look quite kind of clumsy on the ground, don't they? I always sort of think they look a little bit like they're not sure where they are, like they've been dropped there. I guess they have been dropped there. Yeah. <laughs> Great birds, though. I'm, I'm glad to say we don't eat them anymore because I think they were like like just about everything, weren't they? There's so many birds we talk about on this podcast that used to get eaten. House sparrows used to get eaten. Wimbrels used to get eaten. As as did twight. We've got we've got from the Euro ring records. There are records of twight rings which were caught when birds were caught to be eaten in the 1970s. In the 70s. Yeah, not here, I should say, not in this country, but but right. in, in the kind of European recording. Yeah, area, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right then. Well, listen, Jamie, you've picked five kraken species of birds there, and you know the premise of this podcast. You've got to now choose one of those birds, one to sit on your shoulder as you trudge through the barren, desolate, post-apocalyptic world that I've created. So, which bird is it going to be? And I think I already know. Yeah, you do. I, it has to be twite for me, not least because I think that kind of barren apocalyptic world you described sounds a little bit like a kind of homogenous kind of step where twite really excel. And I feel like that could be the conservation breakthrough that twite needs is just a sort of flattening back to mammoth graves. Fantastic and a great reason as well. Well, Jamie, thanks so much for coming on. And I hope that one day you can sleep easy when you discover why Puffin's Beaks do in fact. <laughs> thanks. It's been a real pleasure. It really has. <laughs> All right. Take care, man. Well, that's your lot, folks. I hope to get around to recording a new episode at some point in the near future. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Toodle pip. <laughs> <laughs>